Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Mark, and last week we finished up chapter 9 with Jesus explaining that just because someone isn't one of the chosen 12 doesn't mean they can't be used by God in the miraculous, and we believe that's still today. Everyone can be used by God. Everyone's got gifts. And he ended the challenge not to prevent believers from doing what God had called them to do. This unknown guy that we never know his name, he was being used by God, and they weren't to stop what he was doing, even if they didn't like it or they didn't understand it. And now we come to chapter 10. Chapter 10. And the only thing I can say here is this is one of those subjects that you kind of want to skip over. I, I actually put down here, this is where angels fear to tread. This is one of those portions of scripture that we preachers sometimes want us not talk about. Because hearing it will make some of us uncomfortable and it will make me uncomfortable. It will say things that we may or may not want to hear. But how many know that God's word is designed to show his love for us? Not to squash us or demand us to do things because he is a cosmic killjoy. I share with the class this morning that if you have young kids or even older teenagers, you as parents set rules in place to protect them from themselves, to protect them from the world, to protect them so they can grow up. And most of those rules that you put into place, they don't like nor do they understand at the time, and usually they don't get that until they become parents themselves. This is one of those things where God is telling us as his children, these are things that God has put in place for our good. Not to harm us, not to hurt us. These are things that God has designed so our life would be best. That being said, let's jump in. Mark 10, verse 1 to 12. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went southward to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. As always, there were crowds, and as usual, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tried to chap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? What did Moses say about divorce, Jesus asked him. Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man merely has to write his his wife an official letter of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote those instructions only as a concession to your hard-hearted wickedness. But God's plan was seen from the beginning of creation, for he made them male and female. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one separate them, for God has joined them together. Later when he was done, he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband, she remarries, and she remarries, she commits adultery. Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And your word tells us that all scripture is given by God is useful and and profitable for teaching, instructing, rebuking, and correcting. Help us to rightly divide your word and apply it to our lives. And let the love of God shine through all that you tell us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, divorce. I think we all know the statistics on that. Around 50% of marriages end in divorce. And unfortunately, that number isn't a whole lot different for church folks. Christians don't have a much better average in the world. 
when it comes to divorce. So let's start at verse 1. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went southward to the region of Judea into the area east of the Jordan River. As always, there were crowds, and as usual, he taught them. Jesus had finished his ministry in Galilee, still on his way to Jerusalem to finish his call, his mission of, of being sacrificed. That ministry would conclude in Jerusalem, but he stopped in Galilee on his way. And he had been teaching his disciples while he's walking. He's teaching them as he's walking. And what's happening, I think he's just gathering people that are following along with him. And when he gets to the town, there's also people waiting to hear him. And so he begins to teach them on the road, and he begins to teach the crowd that was waiting for him to arrive. So he's teaching these crowds of people. They want to hear him. But as always, in that group that's waiting for him are people that really don't want to be taught. They, instead, they want to trap him. That would be the Pharisees. Now, this area that they were in was ruled by Herod Antipas. Does that name ring a bell? Herod Antipas is the guy that had John the Baptist killed because John called him out for divorcing his wife. Remember that? His wife or his new wife got upset, demanded his head, and, and he did that all because of John basically calling Herod out for his divorce. So now that's the backdrop for why the question comes. Verse 2, some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? They knew what happened with John. They want to see what Jesus thinks. You saw John got killed for that. Do you agree with John is what they're asking him. Now, this is what I would call a rabbit trail. These are questions that people, even today, they'll ask. They're not really designed to get an answer, but they're designed to get into a debate and take the subject off of what Jesus was there for. Either taking it away from salvation and putting it on something else. It's, in other words, it's a diversion. They really didn't want to know an answer that Jesus said. Now, when you start talking about Christianity or Jesus to somebody, invariably, these rabbit trails will come up. Divorce, abortion, homosexuality, living together, politics, all those things, they'll ask you about designed to take you away from Jesus. I try to not go down those rabbit trails because I never lead anywhere. You want to bring the conversation back to Jesus. And those are all the hot topics that are in the news today. If you, unless you live in a cave, all those things are front page news everywhere. And so it wasn't much different back then. Because the Bible speaks to these things, people want to debate them and find out why we hold to our positions in an attempt to make us out to be bigots or whatever. Always try to bring the conversation back to Jesus. They'll ask you about that, try to bring it back. And since this was a hot topic in that area with Herod's divorce, that's exactly what these guys were doing. The Pharisees, were, they were calling him out, trying to get his response so they can do something about it. And since John had been killed by Herod, because of his stance, they were hoping that Jesus would say the same thing. Yep, I agree with John. And that would give them a reason to kill him like they killed John. Now, even in the group of Pharisees, there's two factions of the Pharisees. There was a liberal faction and there was a conservative faction, kind of like in the church today. The liberal faction was like, hey, a guy can divorce his wife for any reason under the sun, doesn't matter. 
You burn the toast, you're out. That was one side. That was the liberal side. The conservative side was there's only one reason to divorce your wife, and that was if you find out that your wife was not a virgin. It didn't talk about adultery because what was the penalty for adultery? Death, right? So this was talking about the guy finding out his wife was not a virgin when they got married. That was the reason for divorce, and that was the only reason for divorce. Sorry, but women back there weren't considered, and we're going to find out that Jesus corrects that. They wanted to see which side Jesus believed. Which side are you siding with, Jesus? Do you believe that anybody can do it or just one reason? And ultimately, whichever side he came down on, the other side would be have reasons to arrest him. So he was in a no-win situation there. And as the wording indicates, they kept on asking. It wasn't a one-time question. It was like they're pestering him, hoping him for him to give a rash answer. Keep asking someone and they'll say, okay, fine. And they'll give you an answer. They were hoping he would do that. But as usual, what does he do? He answers their question with a question. And that's irritating sometimes, isn't it? Someone asks you a question and you ask a question right back. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. And what he did in verse 3, he says, what did Moses command you? Well, the Pharisees, Moses was their authority. So he wanted to go there before they did. He went all the way back to Moses. He wanted to avoid this, uh, this two-tiered thought on divorce. He wasn't even addressing that. He wanted to go back to what Moses said. No debate, no camp, no, which camp are you in? He went right back to Moses. That's exactly what we need to do with God's word. Go straight to God's word whenever a subject like this comes up. What does God's word say about X, whatever it might be? We avoid emotion, we avoid opinions, and see what God says about it. Because it's easy to let emotions cloud what God really says about a subject. Verse four, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, whichever camp you were subscribed to, this, this divorce decree was a legal document which was given to the woman so she would be free to remarry. It was protecting the woman. The only requirement for the woman was that she not return to her first husband if the second husband divorced her. If you look at the Moses and the law, that was the only requirement. The certificate of divorcement showed the next guy that she is legally divorced and she is free to get married. If she did not have that divorce decree, legally she couldn't get married again and she'd be destitute. Verse 5 says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. There were specific reasons that God had this law. I have two commentators. I'm going to read the first one. It says, the law protected the wife by restraining the husband from impulsively divorcing her and abusing her like an unwanted piece of furniture instead of treating her like a human being. Without a bill of divorcement, a woman could easily become a social outcast and be left defenseless and destitute. That concession that God allowed was to help the woman. One other commentator says this, a distinction must be made between what is the absolute will of God and what the provisions are that take into account the sinfulness of man and are intended to limit and control the effects of the sin. The rabbis mistook God's gracious provision in allowing divorce as his approval of it. The law was not meant as an approval. 
What it was trying to do was make it harder for the guy to divorce the wife. He knew it was coming. He knew men are sinful and they're going to do it. I'm just going to make it harder for them to do it. And Jesus takes them back to the very beginning. In verse 6, he says, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. So even before Moses, Jesus is showing them that who created marriage? God created it. So not Moses, not the law. God created marriage, so God gets to define what marriage is. The state didn't create marriage. Church didn't create marriage. God did. God gets to define and set the rules for what he created. He gets to say what it is, and he gets to say what it isn't. He defined it as one man, one woman, one lifetime, period. It's not living together. It's not friends with benefits. It's not two men. It's not two women. It is one man, one woman, one lifetime, period. There are no exclusions for that. Neither of us created marriage. The world didn't create marriage, so they cannot define what marriage is. According to God, this is what marriage is. God's definition is narrow, and it leaves no room for any other interpretation. And I know this is the hottest topic today. And I'm not saying that those people don't have issues. Just like everybody else, it's sin. God says there's forgiveness for sin. And we love them. We want them to come to know Christ and he can deliver them from that. But for marriage, this is what God says marriage is. It is not anything else. Our attitude towards those who think differently should be love for them. Not condemnation. They're stuck in a sin that they can't get out of. And we pray for them and they come to know Christ. But they can't, they don't get to define what God already defined. Even if we don't agree with that lifestyle, we still show them that Jesus loves them. And what I'm saying is God does not recognize any marriage outside of his definition. There's an article I found that is called Marriage, why it, What It Is, Why It Matters, and the Consequences of Redefining It. And it says this, government is not in the business of affirming our love. Rather, it leaves consenting adults free to live and love as they choose. Contrary to what some say, there is no ban on same-sex marriage. Nothing about it is illegal. In all 50 states, two people of the same sex may choose to live together, choose to join a religious community that blesses that relationship, and choose a workplace offering joint benefits. There is nothing illegal about this now. What is at issue is whether the government will recognize such relationships as marriages and then force every citizen, every house of worship, and every business to do so as well. At issue is whether policy will coerce and compel others to recognize and affirm same-sex relationships as marriages. All Americans have the freedom to live as they choose, but they do not have the right to, to redefine marriage for everybody else. God's word's pretty plain, plain on that situation. God defined it. God gave us the rules for it. It does not matter how we feel about it. I may feel that 55 miles an hour is too slow, and it really is. But it does not matter how I feel about it. The law is the law. And God's definition of marriage is God's definition of marriage. 
we have no authority to overwrite that. And we have no authority to recognize those as marriages. A biblical, now, a biblical marriage is part spiritual. This is the second part of that paragraph. The emphasis here is on the physical. Mark 10, 8 says, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Now, we become one flesh. We don't become one spirit. We're two separate, two separate people, but we become one flesh. And how does the Bible define one flesh? It uses the physical act of intimacy as an example. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Notice it doesn't say, and the marriage couch be kept pure, or the marriage dining room table should be kept pure, or the, or the marriage kitchen should be kept pure. He uses the word bed because that is thought of when you talk about intimacy and becoming one flesh. If it wasn't specifically intimacy within marriage, he could have used any other area that he wanted to choose, but he chose that one because he knows what it, it connotates. When you use the word consummate, what's that mean? When a marriage is, you get married and you what? You consummate the marriage. What does that mean? That means you have intimacy. That seals the marriage. The marriage is now complete upon consummation. The physical act makes it complete. Marriage is completed through intimacy. Marriage is also designed for continued intimacy. Let me ask you a question. How many think church attendance is important? Right? Bible talks about it, several verses about that and a lot of inferences that God does things in groups that he doesn't do separately. How many think that reading your Bible is important? There's, there's a lot of verses in there about reading your Bible, studying the scripture. But there's, no, not, there's not one entire book written about either of those things. There is one entire book of the Bible talking about intimacy. And we all know what that is, Song of Solomon, right? You ask any teenager who starts reading his Bible and he comes across that book, he's going to be reading that book and only that book. Because it's very, I'm not going to say graphic, it's very detailed. It is not, an, people think it's an allegory. It's not an allegory between Christ and the church. It is talking about intimacy within marriage. And did you know Song of Solomon was written from a woman's perspective? That's how a marriage is continually completed. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 7, it will tell you what happens if it's not. 1 Corinthians 7, 3. The husband should not deprive his wife of sexual intimacy, nor is it her right as a married woman, nor should the wife deprive her husband. The wife gives authority over her body to the husband, and the husband also gives authority over his body to the wife. So do not deprive each other of sexual relations. The only exception to this rule would be the agreement of both husband and wife to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so they can give themselves more completely to prayer. And here it is. Afterwards, they should come together again. Why? So that Satan won't be able to tempt them because of their lack of self-control. When intimacy is not continued, you are opening the door for the enemy to come in. Verse 9 says, What God has joined together, let no man separate. God's best has always been not to divorce, but to work things out. Even if the reasons for divorce are there, if you're able to work it out, that's God's preference. But 
Obviously, those things are not always available. And since marriage is a physical union, only a physical act is allowed to break it. And those physical acts are death, adultery, and desertion. These are the three that are most often listed as biblical reasons for a marriage to end. Death, obviously, you know, you're free to remarry when your spouse dies. 1 Corinthians 7.39. A wife is married to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she is free to marry whomever she wishes, but this must be a marriage acceptable to the Lord. Desertion. This is by an unbelieving spouse who leaves you, just leaves you. 1 Corinthians 7.15. But if the husband or wife who isn't a Christian insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is not required to stay with them, for God wants his children to live in peace. Adultery, I think we all know that one, Matthew 5.32. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for for marital unfaithfulness, sins. Now, here's, here's where it gets sticky. There are times when violence is also going to be result in divorce. Now, we all know the verse, Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce, right? We all know that verse. Do we know what comes before it and right after it? Verse 15 says, Take heed to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Now the NIV says it this way, I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as his garment. If you're in an abusive relationship, God says, I hate divorce because I know what is coming because of the abusive relationship. I hate divorce because I know that's a result of what's going to happen with the violence. And violence not only against the woman, but against the children. Parents are responsible for the safety and protection of their children. Proverbs 13, 6, righteousness protects the innocent. Wickedness is the downfall of sinners. If your children are not protected, if you stay, then you need to leave. Jesus answers their question, And he leaves. And they're left scratching their heads. There's no response. They didn't say anything. But the disciples, I guess, needed some clarification. I guess that wasn't enough for them. Verse 10. When they got in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. So Jesus and the guys go inside. They leave the conversation. I don't know what the Pharisees were thinking. There's nothing written that they said. So I'm sure they were kind of stumped. So they go inside and Jesus gets barraged with the same question. And he answers in verse 11. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Jesus did something in this statement that the rabbis didn't do. He recognized that a man could commit adultery against his wife. Up to this point, a man could never be accused of committing adultery against a woman. He'd be accused of committing adultery against her husband. It wouldn't be the woman. It'd be somebody else he was committing adultery against. And Jesus, at this point, elevated to the, the woman to that of being equal to a man. He raised their status and their dignity. He also recognized the right of a woman to divorce her husband. 
if those conditions were met. Up to that point, women couldn't divorce her husband. The guy had to do it. If the woman wanted out, nothing she could do. The guy had to divorce her. She could not divorce him. And Jesus, in this statement, is saying, you can divorce him if he commits adultery against you. You can leave him. Now, remember that bill of divorcement we talked about? Allowed the woman to remarry? If she left without that statement, she was not free to be remarried. A normal Jewish guy was not allowed to marry her again, and she would be basically homeless. No place to go. Women couldn't work. They couldn't get a job. They were left to live on the street. Jesus fixed that because now he says, you're equal. You can divorce him if he commits adultery against you. You have the right to do what he has always had the right to do. So God put marriage together. And in verse 9, Jesus tells us that Man cannot separate marriage, but God can. And he gives us the reasons we talked about. Now, in today's society, a a divorce may be legal according to the law, yet not be right in the eyes of God. The excuse you hear more often, irreconcilable differences. Or we fell out of love, or we grew apart, None of those are reasons for God to give you a divorce. God expects you to work things out. If there's an issue, if you think you're irreconcilable, work it out. Get help. Come to God, come to a counselor. God wants you to work that out. Even the valid reasons he gives. If you can forgive your partner and be reconciled, that's God's preference. But God says, if they can't, then here's when I allow divorce. And we discussed what they were. Immorality, desertion, physical violence. All others are not. Now, wow, we're going to get out of here early. All those things being said, those non-valid reasons for divorce are not the unpardonable sin. How many know that? Sometimes... Christians tend to make it that way. But they're not the unpardonable sin. Now, as I mentioned, the divorce rate in the church is very close to the world. It shouldn't be that way. But since it is, there is forgiveness and restoration in God's economy. How many are thankful for that? 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, we'll accept divorce. He is faithful and just, will forgive us all of our sins, we'll accept divorce and purify us from all unrighteousness. Is that how that reads? I think it reads, if we confess our sins, including divorce, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, including divorce, and purify us from all unrighteousness. How many are glad for God's forgiveness? Restoration? New start. It used to be in the, in the assemblies that if you were... Divorce, you couldn't be a preacher, no matter when. You can be an axe murderer, but you can't be divorced. <laughs> they, they have since amended that to if you were divorced before you were saved. And then if you got divorced after you were saved, 
it would ha you'd have to have a conversation about that to describe the situation. Maybe you're the innocent party. Your spouse leaves you for whatever reason, for, you know, and they don't want to come back. So there's, there's exceptions for that in the ministry process because they came to realize that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. <laughs> like I said, you can be anything before, but now you, because you're divorced, you can't be a preacher. You can be a killer, but you, you can be in jail for life and be a preacher. Those who are divorced without cause can be just as forgiven as any of us when we sin. Spoiler alert, we all sin. I mean, no, we don't quit sinning when we become saved. Hopefully we become cognizant of our sin and stop doing it, but we still sin. Now I mentioned earlier that the reason that God sets these things up is because he knows what's best for us. We may not think it, we may not like it, may not agree with it. But God says, if you do this, your life will be a whole lot easier if you don't. That's why I'm doing it. Because in these situations, there are usually more serious consequences than other sins. When you divorce, it's not just you. It's your spouse, it's your kids now, and all that mess that comes with that. There's a reason that God says, I hate it. Because he knows, not only is it affecting you, it's affecting other people. And how many realize that when we sin, it doesn't only affect us. We usually sin against somebody else. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences for divorce or any sin. It means that we can stand forgiven in God's eyes. Hallelujah. Not the unpardonable sin. God knows, and, and God knows what's going to happen even before it happens. And he still says, come on, let's repent of that and, and move on. I'll help you with that. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? I mentioned earlier that the Holy Spirit was here and I didn't feel like to pray at that particular moment, but I, I realized that the Holy Spirit's here because maybe some of you walked in with these burdens on your shoulders. Maybe you are or have been divorced. And maybe you carry around that stigma all your life. And because of that, you just feel like a second-class Christian. The Bible says it's no different than any other sin. And you can be forgiven of that. And you should, you should want to be and know that you are forgiven for that. The Bible says in Romans 8, there is no, there, there's now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is when you sin and the Holy Spirit shows you that you sin and you should feel guilty about it. That should drive you to 1 John 1, 9, ask God's forgiveness on that. If you repent of that and you ask for forgiveness, anything that you think about after that is now condemnation from the enemy. He's condemning you for sins that you've already asked God to forgive you of. I mentioned in our class this morning, the devil will tempt you to sin, make you sin, and then condemn you for sinning. 
If you feel condemned for something that happened years ago that you've asked God to forgive you of, that's the enemy trying to condemn you. And you need to, you need to dismiss that. Maybe you're in a situation where these other situations apply to you. Maybe you know folks that are same-sex attracted. Or maybe you know some loveless marriages that are out there. Bible never calls us to be roommates. And the Bible never says to reject those who may not believe in Jesus yet. Our job is to share the love of Christ with them. Our job is to pray for them. It's God's job to save them. But what we don't want to do is outwardly reject them as people because they need Jesus. They need Jesus just like the guy sitting in the bar drinking, getting drunk. He needs Jesus too. The guy sleeping around, he needs Jesus. Our job is to show them that there is light at the end of their tunnel. And from what you read, most of those folks do not like the situation they're in, but feel they're trapped. God says they're not. I can change anything. I can change anyone. So we pray for those folks. We love them, and we show them what Jesus can do for them, and then the results are up to God. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're carrying those weights. I think the Holy Spirit wants to take those things off of you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you. I saw Rashida come up and pray during our worship time. Kind of thinking she was giving stuff to God during that time. And I think that's what we need to do. And it may not even be the three things we talked about this morning. But I think God wants to take those burdens off your shoulders that keep you weighed down. That you carry throughout your life and you think, well, because I did this 50 years ago, I can never be what God wants me to be. The Bible never says that. The Bible says when you are forgiven, God chooses to forget everything. And so when the enemy brings up your sin, God says, what sin? And if you have that condemnation, the Bible says you need to get rid of that. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit is there to take that from you. Jesus says, cast these cares upon me because I care for you. So if, you, if you're carrying around something that is just bugging you and it's always there and you can't seem to shake it, I think God wants to deliver you from that this morning. So I want you to come up front and we're going to pray that God delivers you from whatever the enemy is condemning you for. And you're going to have true freedom. The Bible says in Galatians, we are called to be free. And that's free from the, the sin that keeps us down. So I'm going to ask you to come right now. God's doing the work. God's calling you out. I don't know who you are, but God does. And God's going to speak to your heart about what that situation is. That you need to give it to him. I know there's more of you here.
Hallelujah. Father, I thank you. Thank you. That you are the God who delivers. You are the God who saves. You are the God who rescues us from the consequences of our sin. The result of our sin. You're so good, God. Thank you. And Lord, your word says we're to cast all, these, all this junk on you. Take this backpack off my back that keeps weighing me down. The sin that so easily besets me, Lord, take it. And let me walk straight up. Free from the guilt and the condemnation that comes from the enemy. I thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is here working in lives. That you are changing people. That you are doing the work. It's not me. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that's working in your life. We thank you for the confirmation that you give us through your word and through our time of prayer and through what the Spirit of God says to us. We're thankful for that confirmation. And we're thankful, Lord, that you love us and you care for us. So, Lord, I commit these two to you, that, Lord, you release them from whatever's weighing them down, whatever that is, is burning their heart, release them from that. And, Jesus, we know that you'll get the glory and the credit for all of it as we hear testimonies of that. And I know there's more here that may not want to come up, and that's fine, but I think God's going to work in your life as well, that there's things in your life that you, you've given to God and you've taken back. You've given to God and you take it back. God wants you to give it to him once and for all and not take it back. Bless them, Lord. Allow them to have that ability to do that. The Holy Spirit gives them that power. They're a new creation, Lord. The old is gone, the new has come. So they're able to release the things that weigh them down once and for all. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And even though sometimes your word is, is difficult to hear, we know that your word is always meant for our good our benefit and to make us into who you know we can be and that our past does not define who we are going to be so father i commit everyone in this church to you continue to work in them and through them allow them to recognize the giftings that you've given them so that they can be a blessing to this body of believers and allow us to hear from your word allow us to hear from your spirit and allow us to live our lives as a result of what we hear and what we read. Lord, we love you this morning. We want you to have your way. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great day. See you Wednesday night and next Sunday morning.